Well, good morning, church family, and Merry Christmas. See, some of you aren't there yet, are you? You're not, you're not quite through. Let's try again. Merry Christmas. All right, there we go. Good. You're, you're, you're there. It is the Advent season. Um, looking forward to kind of even kicking that off tonight. We're going to do the chili cook-off and carol sing. We're going to have some uh, fun games. The weather, you know, it's not cooperating like we had hoped, but uh, we'll be inside. We're, we're going to make it work. There's already 17 chilies, I think, that are going to be up for the competition. There's some good prizes. I'm not going to lie. Like, you're, if you top three, you're going to be happy. And then we have other stuff for tonight, but uh, it'll be a good time to get uh, into the spirit of this season. Um, speaking of that, this morning's going to be the last message in the book of Genesis until after the first of the year. We are going through the Advent season. We've been looking at hope. We've been looking at peace. And then the messages the next two Sundays are going to be on love and joy as we get ready for Christmas Eve. And so hope you can join us um, for those. And hope that you can maybe join us uh, this Wednesday night as we take a pause in the book of Genesis. We're going to do a going deeper study uh, in Genesis. We did this uh, back in October. We're going to be doing another one this Wednesday night from 7 to 8. You've emailed some questions. You've asked questions. I can't always answer those on Sunday morning. Today's text is going to be one of those, that there are things that even my daughter afterwards was like, you didn't answer this. I said, well, come on Wednesday and you can find out. Um, So actually, I thought that was very funny that she came up. What? You know, so if you want to go deeper, it's going to be a fun evening. Really enjoyed the first one that we did. uh, And so we'll do that again this Wednesday night. So Well, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4, so turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you that you can borrow along, you can read along with us. As we think about weather, I mentioned that just a little while ago, um, raining again today. Over the last few years, we've had significant amount of rain, and with the rain has come from our beloved weather services, uh, warnings. Have you gotten any of those on your phone, on the internet, you know, flash flood warning? Um, flooding warning. My wife uh, this past week had said, look at this, like they're worried about flooding in San Diego because of the river. Um, Grateful for our weather services that they post these warnings, especially if you live in a hurricane or tornado area or an area where there is flooding. The weather services have gotten a lot better at issuing those warnings. Even in California, they are trying their darndest to get even earthquake warnings. Have you seen that? They're try- I'm like, I don't know how you can predict that. But the weather services have actually done a remarkably good job at recognizing weather patterns and encouraging certain areas to evacuate with the warnings that, that they give. And because of that, a lot of lives have been spared. And yet... And yet, every single year, um, in Hurricane Alley or Tornado Alley, there are individuals who do sadly lose their lives or incur significant injury to both self or property because they do not heed the warnings that are given. This is such a big deal that the weather services around the country have actually sent out psychologists Um, people to go into the affected areas after a hurricane has happened and talk to people who received a warning but didn't follow through on it to ask them, why didn't you heed the warning? And one of those individuals was a gal by the name of Dr. Laura Myers, director and senior research scientist at the Center for Advanced Public Safety. And she's done a lot of these studies. She's gone into a lot of these areas. And here's what she has said. 
People have a tendency to not want to change plans or their behavior for weather unless they are fairly sure the weather is going to impact them. So he says that's one thing that we've learned. Like they want to be fairly sure that it's going to impact them. But then she says, here's how they define whether or not weather is going to impact them. They don't make that assessment call until they can actually see the weather and the impact that it's having around them. Anybody want to guess the problem with that? (laughs) It's always too late. And so they said, how can we do these warnings? A lot of people are like, yeah, we get the warnings. We know it's coming, but they want to see it with their eyes. The warnings are almost, in today's world, always there for people's lives to be spared and saved if they would listen to the warnings. Yet, here's human nature. Human nature says, I want to see it with my own eyes. I want to make the assessment. So I just wonder, in light of that, like, how good are you at heeding warnings? Like, what's your kind of default? Not even necessarily with the weather service and their warnings, but just warnings in general. Are you, are you somebody that takes heed? Are you somebody that listens, or, or aren't you? We're continuing our story in the Bible of Cain and Abel, the first two brothers. And where we left ourselves in the story last week was at this point in the story where God was issuing a warning to one of the brothers, Cain. Coming to him and and saying, here's here's a warning, I want you to be aware, heed my warning, respond to it. And today we're going to pick up the story here eventually and we're going to see how Cain responds to that warning. But but if we're really going to get at at this, if we're really going to understand the, the fullness of the story, we need to back up a little bit. And so I just want to do a, a, a brief review, if you will, of, of the first part of this story of these two brothers, Cain and Abel. So we're going to start in verse 1. Let me just read the first seven verses, and then let's see if we can capture what we've learned about it thus far. It starts in verse 1. Now Abel, or now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain, the oldest brother, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, he had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He didn't accept it. So Cain was very what? Angry. He didn't like this. He didn't like the Lord's response. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, Cain, it's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you or its desire is contrary to you. But you must what? Rule over it. So that's that's that warning. God coming and telling Cain there's something in his life that he needs to be aware of. Now, there's a big question that the first part of the story uh, demands an answer for. If you're going to understand what comes next in the story, you have to have this answer clear in your mind. And so here's the question. Why did God accept Abel and his sacrifice, but not Cain and his? That's, that's the big question that the first part of the story wants us to be able to answer. And, and when you look at it, you realize something. When you understand the sacrifice that Abel brought versus the sacrifice that Cain brought, you begin to see that those sacrifices reveal something. What they reveal is that here's the answer. 
Abel set God apart as first in his life, and Cain had not. Why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Because these sacrifices reveal what is going on in each of their, their hearts. If you look at the story on the surface, to put it in a modern context, Cain and Abel look relatively the same. They both appear to be churchgoers. They're both going to God. They're making offerings to him, making sacrifices to him. And yet we can say this clearly from the text. Abel was a true worshiper of God and Cain was not. And the reason why we know that Abel was a true worshiper of God and Cain was not, the reason why we know that that, that Cain just pretty much just kind of went to church and went through the motions and Abel, it, for him it was, it was far more significant than that, was because it says that Abel brought his best before the Lord. He brought the fat portions, but even more than that, it says he brought his firstborn. The first product off of the assembly line, the the first money that he made, Cain said, God, I'm giving this to you first. I'm going to make sure you get what you're worthy of, and then I will live off of the rest. Cain, it says, gave of the fruit of the ground. Cain basically said, well... I know how much I'm making here. I'm going to live life according to the way I want to live it. And then what's ever left, well, then that goes to God. And we made very clear at this point, listen, doing insane religious things doesn't make you right with God. You got to hear me on that. Christianity isn't about you and I offering sacrifices to God and God saying, I accept you because of what you do. This sacrifice story here, this illustrates to us the hearts behind the sacrifice. Abel loved God and worshipped God and praised God for who he was. And so then it led him to act in the way that he did, to give the best to the Lord. He didn't give what he gave so that God would accept him. He knew who his God was and he wanted to respond to him in a right manner. Not so with Cain. Not so with Cain. Cain just brought the fruit of the ground. His heart wasn't given to the, the Lord. And that's where we need to get this in our mind about this part of the story. What you say and do, that's you and me. What I say, what I do, what you say, what what you do, it reveals what you believe about God. Cain's sacrifice revealed what he believed about God. God, you get whatever I feel like I can give you. Abel said, God You are worthy of praise and you get the best of what I have and you get the first of what I have and it doesn't matter if I don't get enough afterwards, you get it first. You see, you can say and I can say that you love and you worship God. You can say you are a Christian. But what this is saying is what your actions, they ultimately really really reveal what you believe about him. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time, and at Christmas time, we sing these amazing hymns. A lot of people come to church during Christmas season. Um, Part of it is tradition. But there's this one song that we sing. Many of them, though, have the same thing. You know that song, O Come All Ye Faithful? O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. We like this, right? It's kind of just a fun little thing. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. And we're like, yay, yeah, born the king of angels, Jesus, baby in the manger. And then it says, oh, come let us adore. 
adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. It's a sweet song, but here's the question. Do you believe the words of the song? Because the song says, oh, come, let us what? Adore him. It's saying that he is worthy to be adored. He is worthy of all your worship and your praise. See, because some people are coming to church during the Christmas season, and they have the view of God that Cain had. They're like, I think I should go to worship. I think this is something that's good for me to do. But the idea that they really understand that he is worthy to be adored does not cross their mind or that they don't understand what it truly means if you do adore him. If you adore him, he is first in your heart. He is preeminent in your actions, in your speech, in your life, in your money, in your resources. They're about him and not about you. Because the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus has died for us. That those who live might no longer live for what? Themselves. Because he's worthy to be lived for. They would no longer live for themselves but for him. Your life and my life is to be made much of God, not about me. Cain did not have that in his heart. Cain sang the words, oh, come, let us adore him, if you will. But there was nothing in his life that reflected that he knew and believed that was true. And so a deep question that comes out of this part of the text is simply the question, while doing and saying religious things, it doesn't mean you're right with God. What you say and do, it does reveal what you believe about God. And we ask some hard questions from this text, which is this. And we got to ask it, and I get to say, hey, Merry Christmas, We don't like looking at this, but we got to look at this. What does the use of my time, money, and speech reveal about my relationship to God? Like, you can't read the story of Cain and Abel, and you can't stop and say, okay, I get it, he accepted Abel because his heart, where it was at with the Lord. Like, you have to look at that yourself and say, who am I in this story? Is my heart given to the Lord? Is he first and foremost? What does the use of my time, my speech, and my money reveal about my relationship with God. I remember a, a conversation I had years ago, early on in, in ministry with somebody that, that didn't go to this church. Praise the Lord. I hope they've gotten into a church since then and that God has worked in their heart. But the person came to me and they said, you know that time when you come into, when we give the offering? The, the guy said to me, he said, you know, really, I'm led to give based upon how well the music was and, and whether or not I was moved by the message. Look, I say this in love. That's Cain. That's not Abel. That's somebody who looks at their stuff and says, I'm going to give to the Lord based upon what, what it's done for me. This is, this is not the heart of somebody who's been given to the Lord. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't give to the... This isn't, this isn't a theater. This isn't a show. This is, a, this is about God is worthy of our praise. He, he gets what's best. He gets what's first. One of the questions that we asked this one, like, hey, listen, I pray over this and I pray over this with my wife. When was the last time you demonstrated that God was first in your life by giving to him before you provided for yourself? That's a deep question, isn't it? That's what Abel was doing. He said, before, I'm giving my firstborn, so before I take anything for myself, God, you get it. 
Is there an actual sacrifice involved in my life? Do I, do I lift him up so much that he's first and foremost? So you've got to get this. You've got to understand why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's because you're, you're not going to get what happens next if you don't realize that God was first in Abel's heart but not in Cain's. You see, because the warning of verse 7 was this warning. Cain, there's sin in your heart. I'm not first in your heart. If you don't deal with this, if you don't deal with this sin, sin is crouching at your door and it's going to master you. It's going to rule you, but there's still time, Lord, or there's still time, Cain. There's still time for you to deal with this. And what verse 8 reveals to us is that Cain didn't deal with it. Look at verse 8. After the Lord had spoken to him, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he, what? Killed him. He killed him. You know, this is a devastating thing, but it shouldn't surprise us. God talks about us having a right, right vertical relationship with him. That being right, then it affects our horizontal relationships. If we're we're right with God on the vertical level, then it impacts us rightly on the horizontal level. But if it's not right with God, I guarantee it's not going to be right with people. We don't know how Cain killed his brother. All that we know is that sin mastered Cain. He gave into it. He was angry with God. He didn't deal with it. He wasn't right with God. And so it led him to kill his brother. He had first already broken the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He hadn't been doing that. And so then he broke the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he didn't just like break it barely. He took it and he snapped the sucker in half. He killed it. He took his brother's life. Verse 9 tells us what God's response was to this. It's remarkable. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Was God surprised? Was he wondering really where Abel was? Where did he go? What What did he do? This is the third time that God has responded this exact way to somebody who's rebelled against him. Rather than coming right out and attacking Cain for what he's done, he's going to righteously judge him. Instead, he, he tries to, well, he's showing his steadfast love and he's trying to see, Cain, will you repent? Cain, will, will you acknowledge this? He responds to the rebellion of his creation with a question, trying to get again at Cain's heart. And How does Cain respond? Unbelievably, he says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? He lies directly to the face of God. He flat out lies. No remorse, no repentance. And so God acts. Verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. I know what you did. You will not own it. Now you face my judgment which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You received Cain from the fruit of the ground, and instead of giving that to me, you used it on your, yourself, and now it's going to be all the more toil, all the more struggle. And on top of this, you shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. God brings his righteous judgment against Cain. Cain deserves every ounce of this judgment. And look at how Cain responds, verse 13. And he said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away from the ground, and from your face shall I be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me, they will kill me. 
What's remarkable about this is there's no remorse. Doesn't even mention his brother, Cain. He's overwhelmed instead by the judgment that he is incurred. incurred. He is worried about what is going to happen to him, although it was his actions that put him in this place in the first place. The guy who actually murdered someone unjustly is himself now worried that somebody else is going to murder him. No remorse, no change in Cain's heart, although God gave him the opportunity to respond. And yet, again, this is amazing. Look at how God responds, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. What is this verse telling us? It says that God actually listened to this unworthy wretch's request that his life would be spared. This just is a gracious and merciful act that really makes no sense. Would God have been wrong to simply let Cain feel the full force of it and to potentially allow someone else to kill Cain? That would have just been the natural outworking of the sin Cain had continued in in this world. Instead, God puts a mark on him. And by the way, don't get, don't get sidetracked by, what was the mark that Cain had? Did he get a tattoo on the forehead? Some, some rabbis say it was a change in his haircut. Other rabbis have actually taught that God actually gave him a large dog that went with him the rest of his life to protect him. Yeah, that's fun, but that's not the point. The point is God showed mercy to an unworthy person once again. So with his mark, look what happens, verse 16. I'm now going to read to the end, and then we're going to jump into the next question. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. And after settling in the land of Nod, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujuel, and Mahujuel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lemek. And Lemek, this guy's a beauty, took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilha. Notice there too, right away, just a violation. Um, he takes two wives. God had said, a man shall leave his husband, shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Already here, this is why I say Lemek's a beautiful guy, right? He, he takes on two wives. He's already violating God's word, but it gets worse. And Lamech took two wives, verse 20, Adabor is Javal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Juval. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tublacane, and he was forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tublacane was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilha, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemech's is what? Seventyfold. This is Cain's great-great-grandson. We see Cain having killed one person, Lemech now. You want to see the extent of sin and its destructive power? He kills two. But then Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a lot going on there in the second part of, of the chapter. 
some of which we're not going to be able to focus on. What we need to, though, look at right now is the big question, question number two. If the first question was, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? The second big question in this text is the question of, so what led Cain to do what he did to his brother? I mean, Cain does something absolutely heinous here. He kills someone. He kills a family member. The, the question that needs to be answered from the second part of this story is this question. This is what God has for you and me today is to understand this. What led him to do what he did? You see, if the first part of this story is about communicating to us, revealing to us what someone's heart looks like who has set God apart as first, the second part of this story reveals to us what happens when that's not the case. Abel's actions reveal to us a heart that's set apart for the Lord. Cain's action reveals to us what it's like when that's not the case. God had warned him, and he said, listen, listen, if you do right, will you not be accepted? If you, if you do right, will, will you not find favor with me? Will things not go well with you? But if you don't, sin is crouching. It's waiting to devour you. And what we discover is this. Here's why Cain did what he did. Cain did not deal with the sin in his life. You want to know what the main point of this story is this? It's that Cain did not deal with the sin in his life. God had warned him. If you would simply acknowledge the sin here, if you would deal with it, it's not going to have mastery over you. But if you don't deal with it, it's going to master you. And he killed his brother because ultimately he did not deal with the sin in his life. Listen to me so very carefully. You will be ruled by sin if you do not deal with it. This is not just a story of Cain and Abel. This is a story of the Bible. Is that when sin is not dealt with in your life and in my life, it's going to rule over you. You will be ruled by sin. This isn't, a, this isn't a question of if it's going to happen. It will happen if you do not deal with it. We are not spiritually neutral in this world. We are not Switzerland. Everybody know what I mean by that? Like Switzerland's this neutral country in wars, right? Supposed to be. That's not the case. Listen, this world is a battleground and you're either under the control and you're either under the rule of the God who made the heavens and the earth or you are being ruled by sin. We're not tabula rasas, right? We're not these blank slates. It's either one or it's the other. This kind of idea that, that we're these independent beings and that sin isn't a power in our world was, I think, best illustrated in numerous ways, but one concerns FDR during World War II. FDR was your, was your typical secular liberal humanist. He, he, he believed that, that humanity was by nature good, which was why, and we have evidence of this, all throughout World War II, he continually got reports of the atrocities that were happening in Europe. He got reports that clearly articulated what was happening in the death camps and in the concentration camps. But time and time again, and we have this as a historic fact, he, he simply rejected those reports. He couldn't believe that it was true. But then one day, while he was walking along in Hyde Park, he came across an Episcopalian minister who came and spoke to him. 
and said to him, have you read Dorothy Sayers? Have you read Soren Kierkegaard? They talk about a thing called original sin. And this perked his interest. The reason why we know this is all true is because the labor secretary at the time, a woman by the name of Frances Perkins, she recorded the conversation that she had with FDR after the fact. FDR came to her after the fact and said, hey, have you read any of Soren Kierkegaard, this Christian thinker and what he has to say about original sin? And, and so into the conversation, as they were talking, here's what FDR said to, to her. He said, well, you better read him because Soren Kierkegaard talks about original sin. For the first time, I understand how people could act so inhumane. Why? Because FDR didn't believe that sin was actually this problem. He didn't believe that there were two different forces at work here. Either hearts given to the Lord or hearts given into sin. But when he came across this, something that the Bible proclaims, either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You're going to be ruled by sin if you don't deal with it. By the way, if you're wondering, am I ruled by sin or am I being ruled by the Lord? It doesn't take a Bible scholar to see in the text this. When sin rules you, your actions will be destructive. When sin rules you, your actions will be destructive. God is the giver of life. His ways are life. His law is life. And when you deviate from that, you invite destruction and you bring about destruction. We look at Cain's story, and it's obvious he destroyed his relationship with his brother. He killed the guy. But he also... By allowing sin to rule, he also caused destruction in his relationship with God. He was angry with God. He destroyed his relationship with his parents. Because Cain failed to turn to the Lord, because he failed to hear the warning, destruction followed Cain wherever he went. I don't think it's too hard for us to see that when we don't walk according to God's ways, I don't need to belabor this point, destruction follows. Bitterness, anger, jealousy, envy, strife, deception, lying. You put that in the, in the mixture as the ingredients for any relationship in your life, and all that you will find is destruction. Go ahead. Just, just try it today. Respond to somebody in anger. Just see how it goes. <laughs> No, please don't. That's a joke. Pastor Dave is not telling you, right? We can kind of laugh about it because we know that sin brings about destruction. It brings about destruction. But I want to say something about sin. Sin is subtle. Sin is subtle. It's, it's, it's place in our lives is so subtle. Cain kills his brother in this story. We can see that. That's the obvious power of sin over him. But before he ever killed his brother, before he was ever even angry with God, it all began with Cain not loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. What scares me with this story is that Cain from the outside looking in, from the beginning of the story, appears to be a worshiper of God. Nobody could see what was in his heart. His actions, if he paid close attention, revealed his heart. But sin is so subtle He doesn't wake up that morning when he's getting ready to offer sacrifices and think, today's the day that I'm going to do something that's going to lead to me eventually killing my brother. (laughs) Sin is subtle. Jesus said sin is subtle. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 28, he's talking to the religious people of the day, and he says, you know what? You've heard it said that if you commit murder, it's wrong. Remember this story? But he says, if you, if you say raka in your heart, that, that, that means if you curse your, your brother or sister in your heart, you've already murdered them. Don't be so deceived to think it's the outward big action that's actually sin. It starts in the heart. And then he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you think adultery is sleeping with somebody who's not your wife? Jesus says it starts in the heart by just looking at the person. A pastor that I was reading this week said this, every grudge is actually murder in a little ball. It wants to be murder. Every lust is actually adultery in a little ball. It wants to be adultery. Every lust wants to be adultery. Every grudge wants to be murder. Every envy is and wants to be robbery. Do you see how sin is, is subtle? And so we'll say things like this. We'll, we'll say, I'm not a workaholic. I'm just productive. I'm not ruthless. I just have a sharp business sense. I'm not stingy. I'm prudent. I'm not... I'm not bitter, I'm just experiencing moral outrage. <laughs> or this one, I'm not unforgiving, I'm just cautious. Sin is subtle. It crouches, it hides. And then here's the other thing with sin, sin will take you further than you ever intended. If you don't see it, if you don't realize how it's subtly entering into your life, if you don't call it for what it is, it takes you further than you ever intended. I don't think I have to spend a lot of time on this point. But like I said, the story does not start off telling us that Cain hated his brother Abel. It does not say that he wanted him dead, but there was a progression that led to that happening. Here's what I will say. How many times have you heard somebody after they've done something, after they've done something destructive in a relationship, They'll say this question, how did I get here? How did I get here? I don't know why I did that. Maybe you've said that. Sin takes you further than you ever intended because it's just step by step. God warned Cain, Cain, listen, you've already taken the path. I'm not first in your heart. You're already failing to love me, and this is going to take you places that you never intended. See, Cain caught was just between him and God, but then he took that out on his brother. Takes you further than you ever intended. And what we got to be honest with one another about is this. The Bible says this very clearly. The story illustrates it. When sin rules you, God's righteous judgment follows. When sin rules you, when you don't address the sin in your life, God's righteous judgment follows. Cain ultimately faced a penalty and a punishment for his sin. God says, I will not let unrighteousness go un." punished. It's, it's, it's what God has to do. It's, it's part of the justice and holiness of who he is. Cain, you've killed your brother. You're already in sin. You're already under my condemnation, but, but now there's additional consequences. The, the ground isn't going to bear fruit for you like it used to do. You're cast out of my, my presence. The story of the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. God does not let sin go unpunished. And so listen, sin is subtle. It takes you where you never intended to go. It brings about the judgment of God. It's a destructive force in your life and in my life. And it all has to do with this. 
you will be ruled by sin if you do not deal with it. And so the question that we're faced with is how seriously do you take sin? Why would we want this in our lives? God's warning is there not just for Cain, but for you and me. Sin is crouching at the door. If you're in Jesus Christ, let me just say this right now at this point in the message. You've been freed from sin's power in your life. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. When you do sin, it's because you're going back to and allowing into your heart and into your life that which no longer has control over you. But how seriously do you take sin? Because then there's some of you here today who have never come and addressed the sin in your life before God. You don't see yourself as a sinner. You haven't owned your sin before him so that you could be freed from that. How seriously do you take sin? In 2005, Roche Pharmaceuticals, they did this really aggressive ad campaign. It was kind of unpleasant, but it was in intensely creative because they wanted to address hepatitis C and and how people weren't taking care of themselves and receiving the medication they needed for hepatitis C. So you know what they did? They had this ad campaign. And what they did was they took and they took the face of a person and it was marred and scarred. It's not pretty. And what they did in the ad was they said this, is a tagline underneath it. If hep C attacked your face instead of your liver you'd do something about it. Tell me that's not creative. What were they saying? They say, we don't often see the effects of, of hep C, what it's doing to your liver until it's too late. But if you know you have hep C, if, if what it was doing to your liver in that moment, if instead it was attacked your face in that way, you'd do something about it. The story of Cain and Abel's coming to you and me and saying, do you see what sin does? Do you see the reality of sin? If you realize what sin can do and its power and its force, but that, but, but that God is warning you that there can be a freedom from it. If sin attacked your face, you'd do something about it. And, and so here, here's the hope in all this. Merry Christmas, by the way, all right? <laughs> You're like, I came to this church. I just wanted to hear about baby Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, we're getting to baby Jesus in a second. Here's the thing. The question before you, are you going to deal with the sin in your life or not? It's there, it's, it's present, it's crouching at your door. Two things. Number one, confront sin's presence and its power. You don't want to go the way of Cain. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you know you've been freed from the power of sin in your life, that's the proclamation. If Christ has set you free, you are free some of the times except on Tuesdays. Is that what it says? If Christ has set you free, you are free what? Indeed. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It does mean that sin still crouches and it's there and its desire is to take over if you let it. So how do we as followers of Jesus Christ not give into it? You've got to confront sin's presence and its power. You've you got to do what 1 John 1.8 says. It says, if, if we believe... If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is real. It's in this world. It still exists. And it's going to be a power in your life if you let it. Do you realize that? Do you own that reality? I want you to be free from it. I don't want you to to walk in it. God doesn't want that for you. But if you go about your life as a follower of Jesus Christ saying, sin ain't got nothing on me. (laughs) In Jesus Christ, it doesn't. 
But, but if you don't think that you could still fall back into those things, you're not acknowledging its presence and its power. For those that are not yet in Jesus Christ, what God wants you to do is he wants you to come before him and acknowledge that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, who needs to accept the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world as that baby to die for you as the perfect sacrifice to free you from sin. If you haven't done that yet, then you're not confronting sin's presence and power in your life, and it's going to rule you. Be free from it. Consider, though, today as a Christian, these words in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any, any anxious way or grievous way in me. And then walk in the freedom. Because 1 John 1, 9 then says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Over and over again in this story, God comes with grace and mercy, warning. He, he, he questions Cain because he wants to lead him out of the path of sin. And so if you're going to deal with your sin, you've got to confront it, but then you have to turn and accept God's gracious provision. Not walking by your own power to deal with sin, but to trust and believe in God's gracious provision for you. How does a Christian today confront sin and not let it rule them and master over them? When you see it in your life, call it for what it is. Confess it to the Lord, receive his forgiveness, but then also confess the righteousness that is yours in Christ. And to say, this sin has no power over me. It's the same prayer that the unbeliever can pray today. Lord, because of Jesus Christ, I no longer have to know condemnation. I no longer have to know judgment because you've set me free from, from that. I pray that we would be a people who respond to sin the way that you and I would respond if we were walking down the street, came down an alley, and you saw a Bengal tiger standing in front of you or a very large spider. Okay, take your pick. If you saw that, you would turn and you would run from it. That's the response to sin. You see it, you confront it, you flee from it. And the other response, though, is to have the response of what would happen if you turned the corner and you've gotten away from the tiger and you see a friend, a loved one, the person that you love the most in the world and you haven't seen them in years, and you see them. What would you do? You'd run to them. You would say, there you are. There you are. You'd wrap your arms around them and you would cling to them. The person in that story is Jesus Christ. The Bengal tiger is our sin. We flee from our sin. We turn from it and we run to the Savior who loves us and who has forgiven us for those sins. And then we walk in that grace that's been given. You see, when you believe that to be true, then you can say, Merry Christmas. (laughs) We can rejoice because we know who our, who our God is and what he's done. And so may we walk in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I sang it already in the service, maybe not too well, but we sang, oh, come, let us adore him. Lord, that should be the response to a message like this. You come and you offer the warning, Lord. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive that warning and then to run to you to acknowledge that sin is a reality, it's a presence, it's, it's a power, but that we can turn from it and we can accept the grace and the sacrifice of Christ so that we can be a people who are freed from sin and walk in truth and, and then, Lord, who can live lives that adore you with all that we are and with all that we have.
And so, Lord, we say, help us in this, we pray, for the glory of your name and for the peace of our hearts and souls. Through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen.